0: Bullshit is everywhere.
1: Bullshit is rampant.
0: Bullshit. Bullshit. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm Hell,
1: I'm not going to take this anymore. Uh, the bullshit filter welcome back episode 1.5 uh still talking about the syrian civil war my name is cameron riley and with me is my podcast bitch ray harris hello hello how are
0: you ray i am peachy keen. um get, getting better thank you for asking
1: you did tell me last week that uh, your, your doctor had stuck his finger up it uh, had a bit of a wiggle.
0: Uh, yeah, well, that's, he's told me that was part of the procedure for five yeah, minutes. No, well that, he,
1: I thought you weren't, you weren't even at his office at the time. It was just at a barbecue or something. You had a garden party. He,
0: he was getting his office renovated, so I met him in a bar in the bathroom. Anyway, I'm sure it's all above
1: board. Uh, so in the last episode... Uh, we basically covered the history of the Alawites uh, and their rise to power from being an oppressed, weird, uh, maybe semi-Christian Islamic sect with a lot of other bits thrown in. And um, and then, of course, uh, Hafez al-Assad rises to power in 1970. In this episode, I want to talk a little bit more about Hafez and... The Hafez era of Syria, which lasted 30 years. He was the dictator of Syria. Yeah. So Hafez, as I said in the last episode, born in 1930 to a poor Alawite family over in the uh, Alawite region, as it was at the time, being controlled by the French under the French mandate, mandate over in Latakia, the Sanjak of Latakia, as it was known at the time. He wanted to become a doctor, but his parents couldn't afford to send him to medical school, so he went to military academy instead.
0: Yeah, bit 19- like. Yep, yeah, go ahead.
1: Well, I was going to say, a bit like my old friend Napoleon Buonaparte, Yeah. who also came from a, a family that wasn't poor, but sort of minor nobility, father had lost all of their money, and uh, Napoleon, at a very young age, at 10, I think, was sent to military school. Uh, his, his uncle, who was a, a bishop or a cardinal or something at that stage, got him access to a military school um, in Paris.
0: Nice. D- do we have an idea of what Napoleon wanted to do? Um, or did that not, re- not that he had a choice, obviously, but do we have any idea of what maybe some of his aspirations were?
1: Um, I I don't know that at ten he really knew, but we know that later on he sort of he wanted to he wrote uh, when he was uh, a young man. He wrote a play, wrote poems. Uh, he wanted to be a musical producer. I think. Um, you know he he wanted to. I'm sorry, uh, try to it Ru-
0: together. Moulin
1: Rouge, I think, was really his idea. Uh, he said, "You know what would be fucking cool, girls <laughs> with big." skirts and no panties kicking their legs up uh Woo! in my face that is how i want to live but just wasn't wasn't to be he had to leave that to other people
0: so here, here's my impression of napoleon age 25 if he has dreams that have come true no no girls stop stop dancing you're ruining my music oh my god do it like this kick to turn three and like me back he, to the top you know, everybody <laughs> just imagine you yeah. are killing my soul my <laughs> creation oh my god watch me again as i do the entire play adolf so, stop you know uh, happened. adolf stop
1: painting stop painting the backdrop adolf we need to start all over again
0: <laughs> look the scenes we can do the scenes later i need you to learn the dance moves right now okay focus people whatever the French word for focus is. I don't know. Yeah. So anyway, so like you were saying, in 1950, um, he can't afford, his family can't afford to, to help him become a doctor, so he joins the Syrian Armed Forces. He goes to a flying school in Aleppo. Obviously, that will uh, come back in this uh, episode, uh, excuse me, in the series. Uh, in 1950, in 1955, he is a lieutenant. He is, he's very diligent. He's taken this very seriously. Uh, in 1957, as you said in the previous episode, he marries... Um, Miss Anissa Makluf. I'm probably, I'm probably butchering that. She is a Sunni, but she does come from a powerful, influential, and rich family. That doesn't hurt. Um, so again, he is making his way up. Not that the military is his end goal, but he is able to further himself and have a decent life through the armed forces. Again, because the Sunnis didn't want to do it, so they let the Alawites do it. And he is fully taking advantage of that. And
1: while he was at uni, he became a student activist in the Bath Party. When I say uni, I mean Military Academy, joined the Bath Party. Um, Eventually, over the next 16 years, he rises to the rank of Air Force General. And then uh, so the Bath Party, as we have seen in previous episodes, first came to power in 1963. Three, then there was a sort of a coup a few years later where the, uh, the, the peacenicks in the Baath Party were kicked out, the founders and it was taken over by more hardliners, the Bolsheviks of the Baath Party, as I said last time, um, in 66, and he was appointed defense minister. So not a bad not a bad career rise for this guy. Uh he's not even, you know, he's 36 and he's a defense minister and an air force general. Not fucking bad and married to a rich wife,
0: which helps. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, just going back. So um Back in 1966, he participates in another coup, and I don't know if we have time to list all of them, but basically there was a lot of little coups going on where they toppled the traditional leaders of the Ba'ath Party. Uh, they brought about a radical military faction that several people joined with. There was uh, Salah Jadid, uh, who who comes to power. And um, all this time, as uh, Assad rises, he uh, finds people that are loyal to him, tries to put them into um, to influential positions and he as he wrote and there was this one part I found it really interesting where he endears himself to um to Jadid. Uh Jadid is uh, captured by a rival faction of the government. Assad finds out about it. Is able to send in the 7th Armored Brigade into the city that is named Suwada. I'm probably saying that wrong, and he rescues him. So again, so they so they he rescues the leader, the current leader of the government. He is promoted. He promotes his friends. He purges the military of people that he can't trust. He pur- purges the officers. But like Stalin, this is going to have a very negative uh, um, effect on Syria's military performance in upcoming conflicts. So politically, he's securing the grounds, but as far as it being an actual fighting force, he is at the same time hurting Syria's ability to, to inflict damage on, on military enemies.
1: Mm. Now,
0: we should remember
1: at this stage that the Baath Party, let's just recap, was created... By a Muslim, a Christian and an atheist And its idea was Secular government and Mm -hmm. Pan-Arabism They wanted to unify All of the Arab nations Into a European Union Of Arab states With secular government And this is something that Assad firmly Believes in Um, But at the same time He's a Syrian First, so he believes in building up Syria's power and his own career, obviously, in the pecking order. But he is a firm believer in pan-Arabism. Now, the coup that uh, he ends up uh, manipulating in 1970 to come to power himself was in itself the result of the 1967 war that the Arab countries had with Israel. Now, the creation of Israel uh, after World War II is probably something that we should go into detail about, I think, in, a, in another series. Right. But, hmm. we, but suffice to say, Arab <laughs> countries, not very happy with it. Um, also suffice to say, that piece of land that the Zionists were g- sort of given and then fought for was part of Syria. Uh, as of uh, you right. know, before the French mandate, uh, what is today Israel had been Syria, part of Greater Syria. So uh, uh, it's very the, the fact that the Jews uh, have taken this land, given this land, taken this land, whichever way you want to look at it, and kicked a whole bunch of Arabs out mm-hmm. does not sit well with the rest of the Arab nations, particularly those like the Ba'ath Party, that believe in pan-Arabism and all of the Arabs uniting to become a, a serious player in global affairs. Right. So uh, in 1967, there was a war which, you know, we're going to – we'll touch on briefly, I'll give you a little bit of background because, again, it's, it plays an important role in Ha'faz uh, Assad coming to power. Um. Now the, the Arab leaders obviously never really accepted. Most still today don't accept the existence of Israel, and again, that's not necessarily anti-Semitism. Um, I fuck, I can already read the emails that the I'm email's getting. Sent now. Yeah, but it's you know, just imagine if if a large part of the United States, a, a, an international force came in and just carved out a huge chunk of the mm-hmm. United States and said all right, uh, we're putting Muslims in here now. Uh, They're going to live here. We're going to kick all of the Americans out. Let's say they took, I don't know, California and said, all right, all the Americans need to fuck off out of California now. We're giving this to the Muslims. They're going to live here now uh, with their own government, their own religion, their own rule, uh, do whatever they want. Uh, Sorry, fuck Mm -hmm. you. I mean, (laughs) Americans aren't going to take that lying down. They're not going to be happy about that. Same, same yeah. for any other country, Australia, anyone you like. But anyway, it happened, and Arabs weren't happy about it. Um, and of course, the Israeli leaders themselves were never really satisfied with their borders. They always wanted to extend their borders for a number of reasons. They wanted for the same reasons Hitler wanted to extend his borders, ironically. Um, Lieben's realm. Mm-hmm. I think that's what the Nazis referred to it as living yep. room. Hey, we need more space, man. We need we need space. Uh, we're growing here. We're a thriving people. We need more room. And also, like Stalin during the Cold War, they want that the Israelis wanted a cordon sanitaire, a buffer zone around their existing borders to right. st- make it harder for their neighbours to shoot missiles at them. So, military conflict between the uh, between Israel and their Arab neighbours had been coming for some time, but neither side really wanted to be blamed for firing the first shot. But then in uh, 1967, the Prime Minister and President of Egypt, one job wasn't enough for Gamal Abdel Nasser. He thought, you know what, I'm a smart guy, I can do both. You know, I, I, I can handle it, it's like me, sure. Yeah, I'm doing Doing five podcasts, running a marketing company, uh, writing a book, what's, but make a movie. Yeah, fuck, I can what's do that. One more, sure. one more. What's one more project? Yeah, <laughs> I, I was already sleeping two hours a night. I don't need that. Pussy. You know, I can be sleep, sleep, that. sleep when I'm dead. Um, <laughs> uh, he, uh, NASA, when he's the president of Egypt, closes the Straits of Tehran to Israeli shipping. The Straits of Tehran are these. Narrow um, sea passages that sit between the Sinai and the Arabian Peninsulas—they separate the Gulf of Aqaba from the Red Sea—and he also concludes military pacts with Syria, Jordan, and Iraq. And mm. uh, you know, it, it's sort of the writing is on the wall here. It's—it's it's, he didn't fire the first shot, but uh, yeah, it, it's obvious that. The tensions are going to rise here when he's – he's it's sort of closing the straits to Israeli shipping is, is a form of economic warfare, if not military warfare. As, as I've explained in the Cold War show, same thing happened in World War II when the Americans, before <clears throat> Pearl Harbor, mm-hmm. when the Americans cut off – Uh, Japanese access to importing petrol and and various resources that they needed. That's basically a declaration of war. You you don't have to fire a shot or or attack something with guns in order for it to be uh, 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 warfare, really. Economic warfare is warfare. In fact, all warfare is... My my theory is uh, war is economics by other means, right? It's 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 a form of economic all warfare is a form of economic warfare because at the end of the day it's about taking someone else's shit. That's That's really what war is zero sum game. Yeah, taking their land, taking their resources, or forcing them to buy your resources.
0: Um, Anywho. I was, just gonna, I was just going to add that uh, it doesn't help that uh, relations between these various countries have not been normalized since the 1948 Arab-Israeli war. I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll get to that at some point. But basically between these two countries in uh, and, uh, June of 1967 tension is rising and, and as you said uh, the e- Egyptian government is making certain moves, closing things down and one of the things that they're doing is that they're mobilizing uh, their forces um, on the Israeli border of the Sinai Peninsula. Now Israel just can't stand for that because as anyone who studied world war one knows if the other guy gets a chance to fully mobilize and then attacks before you get the chance to mobilize they're going to be able to do some impressive damage early on the war it might even be the the deciding factor so the egyptian forces are mobilizing in the peninsula um between uh egypt um just below uh, Israel and obviously Israel Israel has to do something to be able to take these guys out they have to respond in some way other than just sending a very nasty word of telegram holding Hello, girl.
1: Best song I've ever played on the Loved show. Loved it! <laughs> he said the temperatures rising or well, tensions are rising. And tensions that just popped into my head. I had, to, I had to get it out. Had to get it
0: out! There you yeah. go. Now, despite that song, it wasn't raining men so much. And, I, and I'll stop in a minute. I won't go too far, Cam. The Israel, uh, Israeli government had to respond in some way. So what they do is they use their superior technology and they send a preemptive airstrike against the Egyptian airfields. So even though the Egyptians, Egyptians are on the move in the uh, Sinai Peninsula, pretty soon their air force... Does not exist, their planes have been wiped out, their airfields have been bombed, so right off the bat, even though they're winning on the ground it 's about to not matter very much because Israel now controls the skies um, in, in over the area and obviously over uh, uh eastern egypt so this could get very ugly very fast for them and uh, you you can argue that egypt should not have done that i mean excuse me that israel shouldn't have done that in the first place, but they were looking at a situation that was quickly crumbling for them and they Did the best thing they could at that particular time.
1: Yeah, I found it interesting that even before Israel fired the first shot, um, Mm -hmm. LBJ, Lyndon Johnson, uh, (laughs) suggested sending U.S. and Israeli warships through the Straits of Tehran. Right. Basically, you know, uh, running uh, against the the, the closure, forcing the gauntlet. Yeah. yeah, running the gun, forcing the Egyptians to fire first, but uh, Congress in the U.S. said you are fucking, you did kill Kennedy didn't you? You are fucking crazy you, Like,
0: like really You v- Cam, I want you to get on that ship and I want you to go through there where all those guns on the coast pointing at you and yeah. only after they fire I want you yeah. to give them hell, buddy Go ahead, yeah. go for it yeah. If you're still alive, you're still give alive. them hell
1: Um Anyway, so that didn't happen. And then, as you said, Israel launched the first strike on the 5th of June, 1967. Um, Now, they claimed self-defense, but, you know, this is an interesting point of international law here. Uh, Is a preemptive military strike acceptable under international law? (laughs) yeah uh, you know legal uh, international legal experts have been debating this ever since um, uh, anyway and I'm not going to get into that in this season in this series because it's sort of we'll leave that for the Israel series but be um, more. anyway they Israel claim self-defense um, as everyone always does when yeah. they uh, launch a preemptive strike George W Bush. In 2003, Adolf Hitler in 1939, Uh, Julius Caesar in 59 BCE. Well, the Gauls were going to attack us, man, or our allies. We had to do it. Uh, Alexander the Great in 330. Well, the Syrians, Mm -hmm. man, the, the Parthians, the Persians, like yep. they've attacked us before, they're going to attack us again. We had gun, we had it, to do it. It's just
0: it. a matter of time. Come on, people, wake yeah, up yeah. to the threat.
1: Self-defense is always, um, is always the justification for a preemptive strike. So anyway, um, uh, even, even my old mate Napoleon, when he invaded Russia uh, in 1812, same deal, man. He's like, well, yep. shit, they were, they were amassing an army on the borders of Poland. Um, don't have to be fucking Nostradamus to see what's coming So So um, During this war It's it's very successful for Israel um, They occupy the area of Syria known as Golan uh, mm-hmm. Or Golan Heights uh, is the western part of Syria that bordered on Israel um, They also seized during this war The Israelis that is The west bank of the Jordan River Um, from Jordan, as well as the Gaza Strip, which was this thin piece of land that ran along the Mediterranean coast, which belonged to Egypt at the time and uh, held about a million Palestinians. Mm. So the 1967 war, which is sometimes known as the Six-Day War because it lasted six days, and, and it was actually... Yeah, Ibn Saud had his marketing people come up with the name for that war. He said, uh, look, you guys have done such a stellar fucking job so far on your naming of things. Uh, um, We need to come up with a name for this war. How long did it last, King? Uh, Six days. Boom. Yeah, we'll come back. A year later, they said, uh, you know, six-day war. We really think that's catchy, You You are fucking marketing geniuses.
0: Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was a huge. It was just ten million dollars. <laughs> yeah,
1: it was a huge defeat for the Arabs. Uh, huge victory for the Israelis, or so it seemed at the time. Um, now the the defeat uh, for Syria was a, was a huge shock, and it sort of destabilised the Baathist leadership at the time. And as a direct result of that, a few years later, Hafez Assad is able to come to power with his own bloodless coup, where he says, look, you guys, fucking hopeless, you're lost against the Jews. Oh my God, how embarrassing, uh, put someone else in the job.
0: Yeah. If I could just add something to the Six Days War, you're absolutely right, because the the civilians in that government are going to start blaming the military. The military is going to start blaming civilians. I just thought it was interesting that uh, after after the Six Day War, again a brilliant title for that, um, the Israeli um, reputation, whatever preeminence, uh, is greatly bolstered in the area because they uh, they did attack first with the air war. They did attack on the land, getting the Golan Heights, um, part of Sinai, and uh, the Gaza Strip, and it did d de- it did uh, hurt the morale of Arabs all over the area to think that they lost to them after hoping that they would be able to finally finish them off. But again, this, you know, like you said, because of um, Assad's purges, the mili- the Syrian military, the officer corps, wasn't what it could have been. They could have, they, they certainly had more experienced men, but they were politically unreliable. So they get rid of them. They suffer the for, for the feat, defeat. And now there's a contest between the military and civilians in the Syrian government. And this clash of people is not going to stop anytime soon. Uh,
1: And I just want to point out that the international community does not accept these uh, occupations of Israel. In fact, the United Nations General Assembly, I think, has passed something like 40 40 resolutions, one a year since 1967, basically, demanding that Israel returns to its pre-1967 borders. And um, Israel basically tells the United Nations to fuck off. And the United Nations say, Hold on, you realize you only exist because of us, right? Because of us. Yeah. The United Nations created Israel (laughs) after World War II. It's pretty much the first thing the United Nations did. And now you're telling us to fuck off. Really? Really? And then it it goes to the Security Council, and the Security Council all say, Yes. And then the United States uses their veto and we're going to Vito. we're going to learn why uh, over the course of the next episode or two.
0: Yeah, but here, here's the question. Someone someone creates you. Thank you. They can't uncreate you. Do I have to be beholden to you for the rest of my ex- I mean it's it's a done deal. There's nothing you can do it's about it. Like so why should I
1: Like that old Bill yeah. Cosby sketch, man. I brought you into this world, boy. I'll take you
0: back out. <laughs> <laughs> and that's just it. They can't uh, and every, you know, at least the Western powers to a degree are feeling you no know, guilt over the whole, you know, final solution, world war two, whatever. So yeah, so uh, they did create it, but now it's a done deal. What are you going to do now? Um, let me know. When, there was a part I wanted to talk about the the conflict between the civilian leadership and the military leadership in Syria after the war, but I didn't want to get ahead of you. That's all right. Go go. So uh, no, that, okay, I Just want yeah. to mention something. So this it's get it's getting really ugly. At one point, Assad is almost voted out of his position. It misses by one vote. So he but but now the power struggle between Assad and Jadid is now open for everybody to see, and they also have very different policies. Um, Jadid. He wants to um, support civilians so they can keep harassing uh, the people in Israel. Uh, Assad thought they had too much independence. He wanted to rein them in, make it more organized and more efficient because he's a military leader. That's how his mind works. Uh, Assad um, wanted to focus on foreign affairs. He wanted to have a um, a coalition of other governments to check Israeli expansion, obviously, to the east as well, um, and these two are just literally going at each other, and because of uh, Jadid broke relations with Saudi Arabia and Jordan after the war, other countries are getting financial assistance. Egypt and Jordan got $135 million for a couple years in a row after the war to try to build up their military. Uh, Syria does not get that because Jadid had broken away from them. So again, Assad thinks this guy's focused on the wrong things. He's he's making enemies of the wrong people. He's not focusing on containing Israel. And now their their tension, their quarrel, if you will, is pretty much out in the open.
1: Mm. And that leads to Assad's bloodless coup in 1970. And by March of 1971, he has declared himself president and held that position until his death in the year Mm. 2000. Um, Did you read about how he died at all? About, no, about who? Hafez, how Hafez, no, Hafez, how Hafez No, tell me. He was was on the phone to the Prime Minister of Lebanon, um, Uh you know, sort of congratulating him and talking about business, blah, 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 blah. And then the Prime Minister of Lebanon just hears the phone go silent and drop down. And then the call gets cut off and then it gets reconnected a few minutes later and it's Bashar saying, yeah, my father's dead. He just had a heart attack on the phone to the prime minister of Lebanon, which Damn. is funny
0: because we're going to talk about Lebanon in a minute. Um,
1: can,
0: can I mention something? Do, did you want to talk about him actually coming to power? We uh, Go ahead. I just wanted to mention something. So, So since 1969, Assad, because he and his brother launched a semi-coup in uh, in February of 1969. Uh, they put, take took a bunch of tanks and uh, troops into Damascus. They take over the two major newspapers and radio stations of Damas- Damascus and Aleppo. Uh, in the Alawite cities, Jadid supporters are at first just thrown out of their positions, but later on they are arrested. Um, the gentleman who is in charge of the security forces, June D. Who works for Jadid um, is uh, pushed out of power. He commits suicide. So the the between 1969 and 1970. Jadid is still technically in control if you look at a diagram he's still in control it's there's still the regional command of Syria but Assad really controls him and he starts to change the policies he um he doesn't allow the, the Syrian government to criticize other Arab states he frees some political prisoners he creates a coalition government obviously the Baath party still in control of that he does establish the eastern front with Iraq and Jordan to check Israel and and at some point it comes down to um, Assad gets a wake up call, so after nasir's funeral in Egypt, you know he goes to the funeral and he comes back he says, Okay, no more playing games it's time for me to take over so he he holds an emergency national congress in October. Uh, late October of 1970. And because Jadid is still technically the political leader, he is able to get up there and just verbally attack Assad and all of his supporters, his brother, everybody, all of the delegates belong to Assad. And he's just verbally ripping him a new one. And he creates all these different um, measures. They all pass because again, he controls everything politically. But before this Congress started, Assad had his troops surround the building. So Technically, on paper, Jadid kicks Assad out of power. He strips him of all power, votes everything. Everything passes, but it doesn't mean anything because as soon as the Mm -hmm. Congress is over, the troops come in, arrest Jadid, arrest all his supporters, and they just act like it never happened. So they took all these votes, counted the votes, never happened. And Assad, to his credit, offers Jadid a position In another country, why don't you represent us? You know, you go over here because now I'm going to be in in power. Jadid turns it down, I guess because of pride or whatever. He is put into a prison and he stays there until he dies. And like Cam, like you just said, this is bloodless. This is peaceful. It literally happened within a building. And it was just changing some names on some paperwork because he had been in control for the last two years. So as far as coups go, this was one of the more professionally orchestrated ones and he just goes into the building and when he comes out he's now officially in control of the country the government the military everything
1: (laughs) and how long did jadid uh survive for in prison
0: Ooh, i that i don't
1: have i'm just uh looking up it reminds me of um a great movie uh, TV series uh that was on a few years ago um fuck. okay I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to do some googling here because this took me by surprise yeah. Hold on. so um sure. Al swearingen Ian McShane from Deadwood uh right. a, after Deadwood finished he was in once a show that only lasted for one series called Kings. There we go. Mm-hmm. Great show. Um, basically, yep. it's set in like a, an alternative United States where he is the king of the United States, supposedly based loosely on the biblical story of uh, King David. David. But yeah. um, in that he's, um, he, he'd come to power through some sort of a coup decades before, and uh, he sort of has his royal family, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. But his um, predecessor, he keeps in a prison. And he's like his old friend, and he goes down and just sort of—it's like this dungeon that not, everyone thinks the guy's dead, but he's right. still alive. There you go. So, Jadid lived until 1993, man.
0: So, oh my god, he's in a prison until then.
1: Twenty-three years in prison, um, and yeah, in Kings, Ian McShane's character would we'll just go down with a bottle of wine at the end of at the you know <laughs> two glasses. Yeah, at the end of the day, just sit down with his and a bottle of scotch. Just sit down and sort of talk about stuff, you know. Fuck, it's tough, you know, being the king, man. And yeah. talk over his problems with this guy. You, know? <laughs> you got it
0: easy. You're just in prison. Yeah. I got to run the fucking country.
1: If you ever get a chance to see sit around on NBC just for one season, fuckheads cancel it. You know, like Firefly it was really, really great show. Like, um, the 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 like Deadwood, the dialogue was was really Shakespearean. Mm-hmm. Ian McShane is a fucking genius, of course. Right. Got to mention, by the way, his new show that is coming out that I'm pretty excited about. Oh. Have you seen the trailer for that? Yes, I saw the commercials. What is it? What's it called? Um, it's called American Gods, based on yes. the novel by Neil Gaiman. Uh, looks good, man. Looks really good. I hope it, they haven't fucked it up. Anyway, <laughs> love Ian McShane, man. Twenty.
0: 20- twenty three years in prison he was outmaneuvered by a master who you know like like we were saying earlier, to Assad, religion, yeah whatever it's all about power as far as we can tell, and we'll go into this he doesn't do drugs, he doesn't have horrors or whatever, from what I could tell, he's a family man, it is all about the drug of power, and considering where he came from from a poor family on the coast, pretty freaking impressive
1: yeah. And by all accounts, uh, very, very adept politician, very smart guy. I've got a lot of quotes from people who weren't necessarily friendly with him, but gave him major props. Uh, the first one I have is a U.S. Senator, James Abaresk, represented South Dakota from 1974 to 1980 and met Assad many times, starting in 1973. He told one journalist whose book I read that, "...I found him to be extremely intelligent." to the extent that various governments beat a path to his door during the many efforts to make peace between Israel and the Arab countries. He described Hafez as courteous and calculating, professorial and persistent, unleashing flashes of self-deprecating humor during marathon negotiating sessions. And he was famous, Hafez, for these uh, negotiating sessions that were legendary. When Henry Kissinger... First arrived in 1973, and he was the first American Secretary of State to visit Syria in 20 years. His first meeting with Hafez lasted for six and a half hours. The, Dang, on. The U.S. press, who were there waiting out the front, wondered aloud loud if Kissinger had actually been kidnapped.
0: <laughs> That's one tactic I have thought of. And we're going to go. I'm going to go Six into a
1: Kissinger hours. a little bit more detail as we go. But Kissinger wrote in his memoirs about his meetings with Hafez. His tactic was to open with a statement of the most extreme position to test what the traffic would bear. I should do this in a fake Kissinger accent. <clears throat> Get my German yeah. on. Um, he may then allow himself to be driven back to the attainable fighting a dogged rearguard action that made clear the concessions could be exacted only at a heavy price and that discouraged excessive expectations of them. His negotiating style was, in this respect, not so different from that of the Israelis, much as both of them Mm -hmm. would hate the comparison. Not sure if that was a very good Kissinger. It's probably better than my Churchill. Not as good as my Stalin. <laughs> I like better it. than my Stalin. I it. Thanks. Um yeah. yeah. Now these these lengthy, this tactic of holding long meetings um, became quite famous. And it was one of the jobs of the American ambassador in Damascus to warn US dignitaries when they came over to have a meeting with Assad about this tactic. He said, look. Be careful! Don't—they're going to offer you lots of coffee, tea, and lemonade. Don't drink them. <laughs> drink one, but sip it, because you're, right. you're going to go take a piss, and they're not going to. Assad has the bladder of a fucking camel. He will hold it, <laughs> and if you have to say sorry, I need to use the bathroom, they're going to make you're going to look like a little bitch. So it was right. the US actually referred to it as bladder diplomacy.
0: <laughs> oh my god. I want you to call all these sessions the bladder sessions. It's a bit like our recording. It's
1: a bit like our shows. We sit here for three to four yeah. hours recording these things <laughs> in one hit. No toilet breaks. Right. Nope. Now, uh, we'll talk a bit more about Kissinger later because he is also a key, key fucking player in this entire region and, of course, in America's Middle Eastern strategy since the 70s. Right. Uh, shall I continue? Yes, please. Um, I read uh, some stuff from a political scientist from Notre Dame, uh, Eli El-Hindi, and he talked about how Assad's ability to rule for as long as he did really comes down to a couple of things. It was his ability to play religious and ethnic groups off against one another. He obviously learnt Mm. at the feet of the French, divide and conquer. He managed to build this uh, idea in Syria that... A bit like Saddam did in Iraq, although they were quite different in personalities, but this idea that if, if he wasn't there, a bit like Augustus, for people that listen to our Augustus shows, look, yes, right. yes, I'm a dictator, and yes, I can be brutal, but you're better off with me, because you all fucking hate each other. There's sectarian divisions, Sunni versus Shia, the Druze, which we'll get into, the, the Alawites... If I'm not here, you're all gonna just—it's gonna be a bloodbath. Better to have me yeah. here, keeping all the tensions at bay, than not have me here. And you've got the fucking Israelis. Not to you know, they, you know, I'm the I'm the only guy that can keep the Israelis at bay. Um, so reminds me very much of Augustus. Better to have peace under a dictator than bloodshed uh, and some other form of government, be it a democracy or a theocracy or, or whatever. Right. He convinced the the various sects uh, in in Syria, Muslim and otherwise, that he was their protector against all the other guys, either the Sunni majority, nice. if they were a minority, or in the case of the Sunni majority, the minorities ganging up on the Sunni majority and the Israelis ganging up on them, etc. Look, they, they kicked your asses, or our asses in 1967. They could do it again if you don't have yeah. me here, Keeping the state running. Um, oh, hold on! One of my one of my towels just slipped off. This fucking Uh-oh. gaffer tape is not the best thing for holding a towel up on a wall. Just, gotcha. just for the record.
0: Make sure you send us pictures.
1: Uh, damn it! I've got like an entire roll of gaffer tape up on the wall. Um. Uh, Yeah, so he played divide and conquer within his own society. He also played a clever Cold War chess match uh, between the Soviet Union and the United States. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, Syria had been aligned with the Soviets for much of this time. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, as people who listen to the Cold War show know, there were various alliances during this period between um, – well, you know, we've talked about this, I think, in the early episodes of this show. You had the U.S. come in and overthrow Mossadegh in Iran in '53 and installed the Shah. So the U.S. controlled Iran. Um, mm mm-hmm. There had been various attempts at the British uh, to control Iraq after World War One and World War Two. At this point, uh, sort of when you get into the 70s, um, he's really sort of, well, when Saddam comes to power, he's partly also in the Soviet camp. The Soviets obviously are trying to get access to oil as well as uh, the U.S., and uh, everyone's playing everyone off against each other. But Syria was... So it had a fairly strong alliance for most of this period with the Soviets, but as the Soviet Union started to crumble in the late eighties, yeah. Assad managed to switch sides and and ally himself with the US during the Gulf War or the first Gulf War, of 1991, under H.W. George H.W. Bush, and. Uh, it's kind of it's it's confusing at the at the um, um, on paper because Saddam is the leader of the Baath Party in Iraq, Hafez Assad is the leader of the Baath Party in Syria, but the the two versions of the Baath Party don't get along with each other. Um, right, as we briefly explained in an earlier episode when there was the coup, the Syrian Baath Party coup. In 66, when the new uh, Bolsheviki Baathies uh, mm-hmm. kicked out the old Baathies like Michael Aflak, they went to Iraq, and so there was no no love between the Iraqi Baath Party right. and the Syrian Baath. Even though they both wanted secular government and pan Arabism, they saw you know the Iraqis saw themselves as the the vanguard of Iraqi of sorry pan Arabism. The Syrians saw themselves in that role. By the way, the Saudis also saw themselves in that role. So, yeah, even though you might think, well, surely they're all friends. No, no, not so much. So, um, in fact, during the Iraq-Iran war that went on through much of the 80s, Syria supported (laughs) Iran, again, because the Alawites are semi-Shia. Iran's run by the Shia. Uh, during that period, after uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini's revolution, so all very fucking confusing. Yeah. the whole thing.
0: That and I don't know how much the Western powers deserve credit for this, but yeah, they're just as screwed up politically and culturally and religious, uh, and as far as religious as we are, which is why they haven't been able to unite and kick the crap out of us, or, or kick us out of their uh, their country, because they're the fighting amongst themselves. I just wanted to add one more thing before you go on. Obviously, when Assad comes to power in 1970, he gets rid of the opposing Ba'ath Party members. Uh, for all intents and purposes, for right now, political instability is gone. But like you said, Assad coming to power is like an untouchable becoming uh, Maharaja in India or a Jew becoming czar in Russia. It was an unprecedented, uh, unprecedented development, shocking the Sunni majority population. And they had, you know, enjoyed the power for so many centuries. So this is a shock. He does need his fellow Alawites to tone it down. And uh, in 1971, he does declare himself president of Syria. However, he is going to <clears throat> run into constitutional problems with that. I'm sure we'll be getting to that soon. So he has reached the epitome of power. But his past, his Alawite past, is still very much with him, and it's not quite done giving him problems. Did
1: you just say the Alawites got power and kept it for centuries? Do you have a crystal ball? No, no. Are
0: you looking into the future? No, no, I meant, I meant, I meant that the I'm shit. I'm sorry. The the uh, Sunnis um, had power for centuries, oh, and now they're, they're no. losing it Maybe too. I apologize. No, Thank you no. for clarifying. that.
1: Maybe you said that. Maybe I'm so, it.
0: So, yeah, it was a shock to their system then now, because remember, um, before Assad took power, Jadid was there. He just wasn't really in control. He was only in control on paper. So for these people, the switch is like instantaneous. And now there's this Alawite who is openly and formally in charge of their country, in charge of the security detail and also in charge of the military. So for them, it had to be a tremendous uh, shock almost like a very unpopular person becoming president of the United States. It was just something they had to wrap their heads around. Um, and obviously it, it didn't happen overnight. And there was a lot of very unhappy people. And they're the, the majority of the country.
1: Now, getting back to the Gulf War in 1991, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the U.S. were invading Iraq and, in fact, trying to overthrow Saddam Hussein uh, mm-hmm. because he was a brutal dictator. And then Hafez right. says, hey, can I, can, I, can I join in? And they were like, well, <laughs> you're a brutal dictator, um, but sure, why not? But
0: you'll be our brutal dictator. That's okay.
1: So even Israel were willing to cooperate with Syria during this era. Um, wow. Certainly the US were. It, and it brings back a point that we've made innumerable times on in all of our shows. The the brutal dictator part really isn't a problem for any superpower or <laughs> colonial power. No. They don't really care what you do at home, like we like gay people. We don't care what you do in your own bedroom. That's up no. to you. Um, we don't go for it. Superpowers don't care about dictators unless what you're doing starts to get in the way of their economic interests. And in this case, they were like, "Yeah, come on, more the merrier. Jump on board." When it came to the Gulf War, uh, one party war. And in fact, I think for superpowers, uh, dealing with a dictator is actually easier. It simplifies things. It's when you can have one person. Yeah, you're one person. You don't. Democracy is so messy. There are always different different presidents, different parties with different agendas. You've got to bribe so many more people that you get what you want. When, Huge pay. when there's a dictator, it's just one guy. Put money in his fucking secret
0: yeah. Swiss bank account. Boom. Here's a Bentley. Yeah. Vote the way I want to do what I want you to do. Boom, done. A, Thank you, So sir. much Thank more you. civilized.
1: <laughs> How are we going for time here? Okay, we 10 more minutes, I think. Um, now, since that uh, coup in 1970 at Feves, uh, the, the his political party, the Syrian regional branch of the Ba'ath Party, basically has remained the one party uh, that had political power. It was the dominant political authority in Syria up until 2012 Mm -hmm. when, as a result of the Arab Spring and the, the Syrian civil war, the early stages of that, Bashar al-Assad said, all right, all right, all right, fucking free elections, free elections, all right, shut the fuck up, we can have free elections. Up until that point. So for (laughs) 42 years, it was a one-party state. Gotcha. Now I want to go back to 1973 and talk about some stuff, if I can, Ray. Yes, please. Thank you. So on October 6th, 1973, four days before my third birthday.
0: (laughs) It's all about you, Cameron.
1: Again, the timing is not <laughs> coincidental. <laughs> on October 6, 1973, uh, for my as as for my birthday, um, Egypt and Syria launched a surprise attack on Israel, known as the Yom Kippur War, because it was the Israelis were celebrating Yom Kippur, uh, which basically means mm-hmm. Cameron's birthday in Hebrew. Right. Uh, a I knew that. Long celebration goes for a week, and um, they were all busy just celebrating me. It's also known as the Ramadan War or the October War, um, depending on where you are. Now, Egypt and Syria, of course, were seeking to regain the territory that they had lost in 1967. Right. Now, my old mate Robert Fisk, the journalist, um, I'm going to quote a few bits from his books as we go. He writes, I think this is interesting, it was astonishing to realize how much Syria as a land rather than a nation had lost in the 20th century. Portrayed Mm. as an expansionist state only awaiting the opportunity to seize all of Lebanon, Palestine, and even Israel, Syria had contracted rather than expanded, losing northern Palestine, Lebanon, and Transjordan after the First World War. Alexandretta in 1939, which was given to the Turks by the French to try and get them to support them in World War II, Golan in 1967, Mm -hmm. the first three through Western trickery and the last through war. If the Hashemites had spent their modern life losing land, so had Syria. So it's important to remember that, I guess, as we go, that from the Syrian perspective, they had just been losing territory after territory after territory in living memory for a lot of people. Hafez, being born in 1930, had seen a lot of this happen. French Mandate happened about eight years before he was born. But, you know, they'd seen them, you know, get divided up and lose land after land after land that they all saw, I imagine, as... In the same way that the Jews had believed they had claimed, the Zionists believed they had claimed to Israel as their ancestral homeland, for the Syrians, it was like, well, fuck, it's been our homeland too for the last 2,000 years, right? Or more, 3,000 right. years. So they had seen it taken away from them. Um, so getting back to the uh, Yom Kippur War, October 6, 1973, interestingly enough, on October 4th, mm-hmm. the American intelligence community uh, issued a report saying, we continued to believe that an outbreak of major Arab-Israeli hostilities remains unlikely in the immediate future. <laughs> Shit. Two days before the attack. So as <laughs> I always say, when the CIA tells you something isn't going to happen, that's when you need yeah. to start
0: worrying. <laughs> It's about to happen. Yeah, yeah. Continuing and this, yeah, to a yeah, record. E- yeah, exactly. Yeah, so Egypt and Syria has been building up. They launched their attack on October the 6th. And again, most of the fighting takes place over the territories that they had lost, the Sinai and Golan Heights, um, because they lost that during the uh, Six-Day War. Now, Egyptian President Anwar Sadat wanted to reopen the uh, the Suez Canal he wanted to, to, to take it back and um, the Arab coalition launched a joint attack against Israel uh, on that day and um, the Egyptians and the Syrians were going after the Sinai Peninsula, the Golan Heights, but um, as this gets going, the United States and the Soviet Union both start, start supplying their respective allies in the war, and this is quickly getting out of hand. Uh, in fact, the United States and the USSR are getting to a point now where tensions are rising um, uh, between them, so this local war suddenly takes on very serious, has very serious repercussions. Somebody better do something quicker. This is going to quickly get out of hand and be a much larger war. So, so at first the war starts out and it's very successful for the Egyptians. They cross, uh, that they cross the Suez Canal. Um, they advance virtually unopposed in the Sinai Peninsula. Again, they had been humiliated before because when they retreated during the, uh, the previous war, the Six Day War, the Israelis f- literally followed them and just kept shooting at them. It was a massacre in that sense. So they're, they're running unopposed in the Sinai Peninsula. And for about three days, the Israelis, uh, they take the time mobilizing their forces. Forces, and they're eventually able to halt the Egyptian offensive and it becomes a stalemate. So some people, some um, historians claim that Sadat pretty much got the territory that he wanted. He was able to reclaim his his uh, honor and uh, Egypt's honor, obviously, and um, that he told his troops to stop and to dig in and to pre- prepare for defensively. Israelis quickly figure this out, that the Egyptians are not going to uh, keep going. So they're able to focus their attacks against the Syrians on the Golan Heights, because at first both sides had attacked at the same time overwhelming Israeli-held territory, but they're able to push back. And in fact, the Israeli defensive force goes on a four-day offensive deep into Syria. Within a week, artillery from Israel is shelling the outskirts of Damascus. So this started out very well. They did very well for a while, but because the Egyptian forces stopped, the Israelis figured out they could focus on one, and they do that very well. And, um, the Egyptian uh, President Sadat, he was worried. Of, he knew this was coming to an end soon. So he wanted to gather as much territory as he possibly could because it would help him at the negotiating table. So he tells his forces to restart their offensive. But by then, it doesn't matter because the um, the Israelis have mobilized. They're in the, uh, in the area and they're able to uh, stop the Egyptians from going any further. In fact, they pushed them back. And again, it's very ugly. A lot of Egyptian soldiers soldiers are going to die. And the Egypt and the Israelis just keep on pushing and they're coming ever, ever closer to this city of Suez, and there's just a lot of casualties on all different sides. But the just the goal of Egypt and Syria has been thwarted and they have lost a lot of men, and now the Israelis are deep in their respective territories.
1: Yeah. Um <clears throat> but before that Uh, Like Uh When the war was only a few days old, because the Israelis had been taken by surprise, it actually looked to everyone that they were going to be defeated. And this, uh, as you said, is when the US under Nixon decided to get involved. I think it was on October 9th, so three days after the war had started. Kissinger Mm -hmm. and Nixon uh, started something that was known as Operation Nickel Grass. I don't know why. I tried to find out why. I tried to find out what nickel grass is. Like, is. What is nickel grass? Yeah. Kind of is that, grass.
0: Is that like a a dime bag? <laughs> I, didn't, I, didn't, <laughs> I don't know. Operation Maybe they thought bag. a dime bag was. Called, they thought a dime bag was called nickel grass. Anyway, please continue.
1: Uh, in, uh, under Operation Nickel Grass, the U.S. supplied Israel with four and a half billion dollars worth of weapons in today's money. Damn. Um. Now, one of the reasons they did that was because Israel made a decision on October 9th to go nuclear. Oh, shit. Now, of course, just for people who don't know, Israel is not one of the signatories to the uh, nuclear non-proliferation pact even today. In fact, they don't even admit to having nuclear weapons. Right. But here we are. Come on. Here we are in 1973. They were preparing to go nuclear. If, if it looked like they were going to be invaded, their actual yeah. territory inside their borders, and they were going to lose as a last resort, they were preparing to go nuclear on the Arab states. Kissinger has said that the world came with, you know, within a hair's breadth of all out nuclear war. Um yeah.
0: forget forget beer pigs damn and,
1: you know this is the day before my third birthday so just you know that could have oh, happened shit. the next day on my birthday <laughs> uh, which, oh my God which is what it was all about
0: that's so, like lighting candles uh-huh.
1: yeah uh try blowing that one out um <laughs> so yeah Kissinger and Nixon decided to support Israel to prevent the, the nuclear option.
0: Right.
1: Bottom line, short, you know, fucking bottom line is Israel won. I mean, the US, when, when the US started supporting Israel uh, on October 9th, then the Russians started supporting Syria. But, the, you know, the, the, the Americans were in a far better position to provide support than the Soviets were at that juncture. So uh, Israel wins. And as a result of the US's support for Israel, a week later, October 17th, 1973, the right. OPEC countries, the oil-producing countries, uh, Arab states, led by the Saudis, plus Egypt and Syria, launched an oil embargo against the United States, Canada, Great Britain, Great Britain, uh, a number of other countries, uh, Japan, I think. Damn. They Also, reduced their production and raised prices around the world. In fact, uh, within a very short period of time, oil prices quadrupled, barrel prices of oil quadrupled.
0: Now, I remember being a kid in my dad's car and waiting forever in line at a gas station. Of course, I was, you know, I was a little kid. I was like seven years old or whatever. I just remember going, "God, we're at this, we're in this line forever." And I said something to my father, and he's like, "Shut up!" You know, whatever. But I just remember going, "We've been waiting here forever." So I vaguely remember that, and and I just remember the tension at the time from the adults. About that Well it wasn't it freaked me out
1: Yeah it wasn't just about um, Oil Or gas prices Going up either This basically Fucked The American economy Very very quickly mm-hmm. You know Gas Petrol Is one of those things That is fairly Inelastic uh, In terms of demand When prices go up right. People don't stop Driving their cars Or their trucks Or their buses <laughs> Or flying planes They go Well I guess yeah. we have to pay Whatever the price is And this caused serious economic disruption in the West. By the way, something I didn't know but I learned is the national maximum speed limit of 55 miles per hour in the United States was brought into place in 1974 as a direct result Ah. of the oil embargo uh, as an attempt to try and reduce gas consumption. Wow. Yeah. Now, inflation soared, the stock market crashed, the U.S. economy was in a tailspin. Obviously, Vietnam is still going on, Watergate is Mm -hmm. going on, uh, the civil rights movement is still, you know, it's all very hot over there. It's kind of MLK has been dead five or six years at this stage and, and RFK and these guys, but it's still... America's a hotbed, Nixon's like got a lot on his hands, all of a sudden everything crashes. And it's not just what's happening domestically that's a problem too. America's entire Cold War strategy gets affected as a result of this. Uh, of course, up until this point, the U.S. had been focusing on China and the Soviet Union as their main challenges against U.S. hegemony, economic hegemony. Ah, all of a sudden- right. These motherfuckers in the Middle East all are, are able to crash the U.S. economy overnight by yeah. uh, thro- kicking up oil prices. In fact, um, and I'm going to stop in a minute because we're out of time, but uh, in 2004, certain documents were declassified that revealed that the United States was so worried about the rise in oil prices that they considered military action to forcibly seize all of the oil fields across the Middle East in 1973-74. British Ambassador to the United States at the time, Lord Cromer,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. uh, revealed that the U.S. Secretary of Defense at the time, James Schlesinger, told him that it was no longer obvious to him that the U.S. could not use force to take control of the situation. Um, and this led the Prime Minister of England at the time, Edward Heath, to order British intelligence to create an estimate of the U.S. intentions in the area. And that estimate concluded that America might consider it could not tolerate a situation in which the U.S. and its allies were at the mercy of a small group of unreasonable countries, and that it would be preferable for the U.S. to rapidly seize oil feeds and oil fields in Saudi Arabia and Kuwait in military action, and the uh, intelligence report concluded that American occupation would need at least 10 years while the West developed alternative energy sources and would result in the total alienation of the Arabs and of much of the rest of the third world. But the the impact of the oil embargo didn't stop there, but we're going to continue talking about the impact of that in the next
0: episode. Just think about where we would be right now if that had happened.
1: Yeah. Wow. Wow. Imagine if the U.S. had invaded the Middle East and were controlling it for decades. Oh, okay. It did happen. It just didn't happen for 30 more years. (laughs) But we're going to talk about what they did in that 30 years because uh, they had to do something and what they did, again, far-reaching implications, including what's going on in Syria today. Let me uh, read another review. Um, uh, Luke L U K E from the United Kingdom. His review is entitled "Gold." Always believe in your soul. <laughs> you know what that means. Okay. Spend no. Spend Our Belly. As soon as he wrote "Gold," I thought of Spend Our Belly. Always believe in your soul You've got the power to know You're indestructible Showing that Luke Luke is a true fan of the show Because I've played that song many times He says, another fantastic podcast by Ray and Cam slash Cam and Ray. If the names mean nothing to you, just listen. This is a very important podcast, starting with a critical in-depth analysis of the origins and reasons for the Syrian civil war. You'll get the same feeling an international relations student does after selling their organs for university fees. The feeling of everything I knew was a lie and I'm angry, but for free. It's true. I have no doubt yes. it will continue to be amazing. Thank you, Luke. Send me an email, CameronRiley at gmail.com. I'll send you a thank you gift. Well, just give me your address and I'll send you a thank you gift when I've yeah. made one, yeah. which will happen soon, I promise. That's it's got the happen. end of Episode 1.5. We will be back with Episode 1.6, talking about more of the impact of the oil embargo of 1973 in terms of the United States' relationships with various entities in the Middle East. We're also going to talk yeah. about uh, uh, the uprisings in Syria during Hafez el-Assad's rule. We're going to be talking about the Lebanese Civil War, the role that Syria played in that, how that all plays into things, and if we have time, we'll get into Bashar's years <laughs> and the, the, the beginnings of the actual yeah. Syrian Civil War, how it all started because uh, that in and of itself is a – Fascinating and, of course, extremely important story. So, um,
0: we're going to get there.
1: Yeah, we're going to get there, folks. Hang in there. <laughs>